I was born two months premature. I lived in an incubator for six weeks before they allowed me to go home. And those nurses and those doctors took care of me. And I'm so grateful for them. I grew up going to church. I had in the church people who knew my story of how I came into the world and the fighting for my life. And they would speak over me and they would say, you're a miracle. You're a miracle, baby. God has such great things in store for you. And I wanted to believe that. My parents were still kind of, they were first generation believers. So we were trying to learn from them, but they weren't bringing what they were learning home because they were busy wrestling with a lot of what had happened to them in their own childhoods and their own families. The church that we belonged to believed that with every sin, you could lose your salvation. And so all my most formidable years of my life, I believed that there wasn't any security in my salvation. I didn't have confidence in it. And it was a very performance-based faith. It was, if you can do the right things, if you can say the right things, if you can behave the right way, if you can look the right way, then you'll receive love. But I wasn't that child. I, I did all the wrong things. I said all the wrong things. I behaved all the wrong ways. I couldn't get my act together. And so there was always this withdrawal. I don't remember exactly when being molested started for me. I think it was about five or six for what I can trace. I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel loved. By the time I was in middle school, I was allowing myself to be used because I really didn't know if anyone wanted me. The sexual abuse coupled with the emotional abuse compounded with the spiritual abuse wrecked me. Going off to school, I went to a college party with some friends two boys that I would have called friends raped me. There was a terror that flooded my soul. How can this happen to someone over and over again and again and again? How can someone survive life feeling this unloved and disposable, worthless? And I remember crying out to God and saying, you know what, why didn't you just let me die as a baby? Why would you save my life for my life to look like this? That's a lot. That's a lot. And my, my fear is that a lot of you can relate to Christy's story. Maybe your brand of abuse looked different than hers, but the emotions are identical. That you, you have a sense that there's a holy God who's supposed to love you up there. But because of what was done to you, 
and because of what you did, because of what was done to you, you look at your own life and you think, there's no way for me to be acceptable with God. I'm not even acceptable with these people. And that's what I want to talk about. How do you bridge the gap when you just feel this distance between where God wants you to be and where other people have put you, where you put yourself? How do you bridge the gap? Well, the good news is there's a way. And I can summarize it in a simple, single word, grace. And that's what I want to talk about, is, is the grace of God. You know, we're in this series where we're talking about the character of God. And we're landing on one specific verse where God is described. And what's interesting in this verse is God is not described by some prophet or even some poet waxing eloquently. No, this is the description of God from God, where God says, this is what I want you to know about me. He's talking to Moses, he's taken him up on the mountain, and he's revealing himself to Moses. This is what he says in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's what God said to Moses about who he is. If you counted them, there's five characteristics where God says, this is who I am. And last week, Dave gave a message about the compassion of God. My task today is to talk about the grace of God. That's a weighty task because grace is, it's big. It's not just an event. It's not a moment. It's not a thing. Grace is a very long story that goes from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And that's what I want to talk about. The story of grace throughout the Bible. It's such a big deal that you might know this name, C.S. Lewis. He was one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. You, you might recall he wrote these children's book called The Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you've heard of them. But Lewis came to Christ late in life. And so this was all new to him. And so he goes to this conference on comparative religions where they talked about what's the difference or similarities between Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and Judaism, Islam and Mormonism. What, what, what are all these religions all about? Well, one of the groups was talking about the uniqueness of Christianity. Is it different than every other religion? And these scholars and theologians threw out a few ideas, like the resurrection, like Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that's different, right? Actually, there are some other religions that have a similar idea. What about incarnation, God becoming flesh? That's got to be unique, right? Actually, there are some other religions that have a kind of similar idea. Lewis walked by while they were enthralled in this argument, and he said, what are you discussing? And they said, well, we're looking for a uniqueness of Christianity that's different than every other religion. And Lewis just goes, well, that's easy. It's grace, a newbie. And they go, wait a minute. Are there any other religions that talk about grace? No. Oh, there are religions where a God would have grace for their people, or God would have grace for you if you obeyed. God would have grace if you earned it. But Christianity is completely different. See, we're saved not by what we do for God, but by what God has done for us. Every other religion has a, think of it as a stairway to heaven, and they're all really, really long. Like, if you're a Hindu, you will be reincarnated 
and you feel live a little better in this life than you know the badness in your life, then you're reincarnated as a better creature. You know, I guess you go from a beetle to an ant or something. Uh, if you're really, really good, this is crazy. If you're really good, you come back as a cow. Mm. And, and it takes dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of lifetimes before you can earn what they hope to earn is called nirvana, which technically is nothingness. You, so all those lifetimes to reach the nothingness, how about that? That's hard. Or if you are a Muslim, you've got the five pillars to prayer and you got to go to Mecca and you got to give benevolence to people. Five pillars. You obey the, the more you obey, the closer to God you can get. Judaism has its covenant loyalty to God. In, in Buddhism, there's the eight pathways to God, but all of them is a stairway that you build and you climb the stairway all the way up to heaven. The problem is none of us are good enough for that. And you sense that in your soul, that there's a goodness of God and there's a reality of humanity and you're way closer to the bottom of the barrel in humanity than you are to the goodness of God. You feel that? That was, that was what Christy was struggling with. And her life felt meaningless because she tried and tried to be good enough for God. Some of you are doing that right now. You, you come and maybe you're watching online or you're sitting on a campus, you go, look, like, look God, I'm doing something for you. Or maybe you put something in the offering and, or, or maybe you say a prayer or read your Bible and you go, see God, I'm, I'm doing the thing. And the more you do the thing, the more you realize the thing isn't moving me. I, I just feel stuck in between the goodness of God and the reality of humanity, is there a way out? And the way out is grace. Christianity offers grace in a way that no other religion does, even, even Judaism. There were glimpses of grace in the Old Testament. You know that. But even where God showed grace, the grace should only be for those people who earn it and deserve it. That's what Jonah felt. In fact, I want to read to you a passage from Jonah the prophet where he actually quotes the verse that we just read. Now, the backstory of Jonah, if you've not heard it, there's a guy, he's a prophet. God says, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. And Ninevites were nasty, vicious people. They hated the Jews and the Jews hated them back. And so God says, Jonah, go to the Ninevites and preach to them. He goes, no, I don't want to do that. He, he said, no. And he didn't just say no, he, <laughs> he went the wrong direction. He goes to the coast, gets on a boat, going to Spain, Nineveh's the opposite direction. So God intervened with a storm. And the storm like tossed the boat about. And the sailors said, why is this storm here? And Jonah said, well, there might be a thing. And they, <laughs> when they found out, they threw him overboard. They didn't want to, but they kind of had to. And so God intervened. Jonah is in the middle of the ocean. He's sinking, and he intervenes with a fish, a big one, swallow Jonah for three days. And then he takes Jonah right back to the shore, regurgitates him, and there Jonah is, finally willing to go to Nineveh. But the sermon he preached, well, it was really, really short, but you still wouldn't have liked it. Basically, he said, in 30 days, you all die if you don't repent, and I hope you don't. But they repented, and God relented, and now Jonah is having a bit of a snit. He's sitting before God and just going, this is exactly what I told you would happen, God. And this is where he quotes the verse we just read. 
He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. There it is, the very character of God. God told him who he was. Jonah believed who he was, but didn't like it one bit. Here we are. We hear, what, we hear who God is. And we like it. We want God to be gracious, but we don't believe it. Grace, in my estimation, is what most Christians struggle with most. And the way I know that is you're still trying to do the thing to earn your way to God. And you're realizing, I can't, I can't fix myself. I need God. And you get to the New Testament, and it's not just grace. It is grace upon grace. I want to read one verse out of John chapter 1. And then I want to tell you a story. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have received, get this, grace upon grace. Grace is not an event, it's not a moment. It is a story. Grace is a very long story embedded in a very real person. It is grace upon grace. Chapter after chapter of God lavishing his grace on us. And I suppose if we're going to tell the story, we should begin at the beginning. John chapter 1 tells the entire biblical story of grace in one chapter. And he opens up in verse 1 with in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what God created, it was an act of grace. For all people, because all of us live in this world and everything God created is a kindness to you, a gift to you of his goodness. John puts it this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, that's Jesus, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Creation is an act of grace. And everything God made from the vast plains to the waters that flow from the hills, to the skies above and the beasts on the earth, to the midnight sky and the desert landscape, all that God made is good. From icy peaks to fiery depths, the goodness of God is seen everywhere in his vast creation, under the waters, in the skies, in the desert, in the mountains, in the smallest creatures, in the most ferocious creatures, in the vast number of creatures. The goodness of God is everywhere. But there is a problem. And you know the problem. It's you. God created the world and he finished in Genesis 2. By Genesis 3, we had irreparably marred God's good creation. Adam and Eve were in the garden and there was a tree, just one tree. God said, don't eat of that tree or you'll die. The tree, do you remember, was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve said, I wanna, I wanna be like God. I wanna know good and I wanna know evil. So they took the bait and they bit the fruit. And when they did, oh, they knew good and evil. They knew good and evil. 
They knew that God was good, and they knew that they were evil. And even today, we have this sense all over the world that that, that there is a goodness of God. We know that. And we look around, (laughs) just one glimpse at the news, and you, you don't have to have anyone convince you that there is evil in the world. There are actually more people right now that believe in the devil than believe in heaven because they're experiencing some of the hell on earth because of the pain that we cause one another. And so there was the problem that we couldn't fix because we are the problem. And so God intervened again. In this story of grace, he comes to chapter two, and aren't you glad? It's a very long story embedded in a very real person. And what God did was to give us the law. It's kind of an owner's manual of how to operate this thing called you. And he tells us, there's just 10 simple commands, and he tells us how to be married and, and, and how to enjoy life and how to rest and how to worship. Like all of the plan is in the top 10. Now there were more added because, well, we needed them. But right here, right after we read about grace upon grace, we read these words in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law of God is actually good. It's good for you, it's good for us. In fact, there is no nation on the planet with a positive human rights record that does not have the Ten Commandments as the foundation of their ethical and legal system. God knows what we need. Problem is, we want to be God. And we think we know better than God how to live our lives. we make a mess of things. And it's not just what we do, it's what was done to us. And we live this life, we know what the law says, but we break the law because we want to be in charge of our own lives. Am I talking to anybody? Part of what Christie struggled with was this legalism that said, if you do the thing, just do the thing. You know, go to church and read your Bible and pray, and you will be good enough. But the problem was she couldn't. Compound that with what was done to her, and now she's walking with a limp and trying to live life not knowing that anybody cares about her. When you don't know that you're valued, you will do almost anything to find value in people who don't have the values of God. Maybe you can relate to that. That's the problem with the law. The law is good, we're not. So God knew that we needed another help. And so because we're the problem, we can't fix our own problem, God gave us a third chapter in this chapter of grace. It's a very long story embedded in a very real person. And the third chapter is the light. Now you know that the light is Jesus is what it says here in verse five. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It is Jesus, but it's not just him. See, there are luminaries pointing to the light. The Bible calls them prophets. You might call them mentors, teachers, parents, coaches. But there are people around who keep pointing to the light. Even as our society gets really dark, Our world gets really dark. There's always this light. These people who stand up and tell the truth about God. Tell the truth about, calling us back to the right way to live. What do we do to those people called prophets? 
Well, <laughs> throughout the Bible, we threw them in pits and prisons. We, we kicked them out. We sent them to another country or sent them to their graves. We beat them. We ignored them. We scandalized them. That's what we do to the luminaries God sends. But in this context, there was one in particular who is a big deal because this prophet was shining a spotlight on the prophet. His name was John, not the author of this book. He's actually John the Baptist, the, the wild guy in the wilderness. Remember him? Wore camel, scare, uh, camel skin coat. He ate bugs and honey and stuff like that. Anyway, he's preaching out, baptizing in the Jordan River. It says in verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, as Jesus, so that through him all might believe. And what do we go and do with John? Well, uh, part of John, when John pointed them back to the law, this is right, this is wrong. John was a preacher like that. One of the wrongs of his country was a marriage of the king. King Herod had literally stolen, seduced and stole his brother's wife, who is also their cousin. Yeah, it was wrong at multiple levels, don't go there. But John went there, and so he got arrested, thrown in prison. I, I suppose that Herod would have like let it go, because he has thick skin, but his wife, no way. And you know what the Bible says, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Okay, the Bible doesn't really say that, but it should, because that's God's honest truth. And she said to her husband, I want his head on a platter. And she got it. John was killed. He pointed to the light. It says in verse nine, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So what did we do? We crucified him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, as any story goes, this is the, this is the plot twist. This is what you never expected, what you never saw coming, that the son of God. In fact, Jesus told a parable about this about a, a, a man who owned a vineyard and he sent his servants to collect from those who ran the vineyard. What they beat the servants, that's the prophets. And he sent more servants and they killed them. And he thought, I will send my own son. Surely they'll respect my son. He sends his son, what do they do? They killed him too. That's exactly in that parable was happening in this very long story from Genesis to Revelation. The pinnacle of the story is when God sends his own son and we killed him. And though that is a tragedy, that is the great twist. Satan meant it for evil, but he just put the nail in his own coffin. Because when we crucify Jesus, it is the payment of our sin in his body on that cross. And the power that raised him from the dead was the power that gives us new life, regardless of your previous life. The, if, when you model your life on Jesus' life, that's when you can get to the higher levels in, of the story. Yes, God is gracious to everyone through creation. Yes, God is gracious to everyone through the law. Even if you say, well, I've never heard of the Jewish law. I don't know the Jewish law. 
The book of Romans chapter two says, the law of God is written on your hearts. In our conscience, we know right and wrong. That's part of the consequence of eating the forbidden fruit. And so we see the light. And many of you believe the light. Here's part of Christie's story, verse 12. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what I mean by inclusion. That you can be included in the family of God. You can be a daughter of God. You can be a son of God. You can be a holy one, what the Bible calls a saint. But most Christians never get there because we still have our feet planted on the law. This is, this is where Christy got stuck. She knew the law. She saw the light. She believed who Jesus was, but she didn't receive who Jesus was. What do I mean by that? In order for you to move from the law, to, to let the law determine who you are and, and, and to define who you are as a human being, most of us are still back there going, yeah, but I know the goodness of God, I know the badness of man, and so I have a distance from God. No, because God came down to you. If I could change one thing about not just this church, every church, is I would get this message into people's hearts that your status with God, your belonging with God, your inclusion in the family of God has nothing to do with the law. Leave it behind. You can't receive if your hands are full. You can only receive if you let go of what you're holding on to. I want to talk to that single mother. You keep saying to yourself, I'm a bad mom. I made some bad decisions. I'm screwing up my kids. That's the past. If you can let that go, you can receive his grace and be fully included in what God is doing in this world. I want to talk to that businessman who you just went bankrupt and it's in the news and it's embarrassing and you don't even want to go in public because you're afraid of what everyone is going to say. But are you concerned at all about what God says about you? Because he doesn't say you're a loser. He says you're a child for you that just got released from prison or jail. You're looking around and going, I'm not like other people around here. I mean, they can tell by my tats that I'm not one of them. The only thing that should mark you as a believer is the Holy Spirit of God. And the way that you let go of the past, not, not just the guilt and shame that you feel, but some of you, you're holding back the right to vengeance because of what someone did to you. Christy had plenty of reason to hold grudges and anger and bitterness and revenge. The problem with holding that kind of fire in your chest is you're the only one that gets burned. And when you release the right to revenge and actually forgive, not because they deserve it, because you didn't deserve it when Jesus forgave you, but when you release that right to revenge, you release that bitterness and shame and anger then you can receive what Jesus offers you. And if you can believe who Jesus is and receive his grace, you can become a child of God. That is 
That is the message of the gospel. And the beauty of how it happens is embedded in verse 14. You think, how, how can I possibly get there? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The way that you release it is to let him be present with you. Now, I know that Jesus isn't here right now, not physically, but trust me, he's in the room. And when Jesus left, he left his spirit with us. When he was here, he was present. He dwelt among the apostles. They lived together, they ate together, they walked together. But when he left, he had the Holy Spirit, not to be among us. No, the Holy Spirit is in us. And because the Spirit is in us, we are children of God. So you know what happens when you sin? God doesn't change your name. He tries to change your identity through the Spirit that is in you. Look, I got two children of my own. They were perfect in every way. Not. When they didn't live up to the name I gave them, I didn't change their name. I reminded them of who they are. I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. That's the beauty of Christianity. You don't have a close relationship with God by what you do. It's not about your past. It is about what he has done for you in the past. Jesus died for your sins, and he's offered you his Holy Spirit. And if you can receive that spirit and release what has gone before, then you move not merely to inclusion, you go to vision. What, what, what do I mean by vision? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You can see God. In the person of Jesus, you can see God. Through the Holy Spirit in you, you can see God. And if you can see God, then you will see other people through God's eyes. And suddenly, it's not what was done to you, but it's what is done through you that matters most. The power of grace is not merely that you can release the pain of your past. The power of grace is that you can become an agent of grace in this world. I, as I was studying for this message, I was stunned. It took my breath away. In the Old Testament, there are five people that it says individually, God gave grace to them. Names them. Only five. All five were rescuers of other people. The pain of your past may in fact be the highest platform for the grace that you show to others. Isn't it true that what was done to us empowers us to show grace and favor to those going through the same darkness. It was true for Christy. She went through hell. She knows how it smells. She knows how it, how it feels. And because she has been there, she can take people who are there and lead them into the story of grace. I want you to hear the rest of her story. 
I started going to church and I started really hearing the voice of God calling me back to Him. But I struggled with shame. I was alive in Christ. I knew I was saved. I knew that I couldn't lose my salvation, but I was bound. And the Lord started working to allow me to be free. It took community. That was the beginning. Going to church, seeing others who were coming from broken places and experiencing the Lord. And I wanted that. Again, trying to do everything in my own strength. I couldn't do it because deep inside of me, I still believed the lie that I really wasn't worth anything. My brother introduced me to my husband and it's funny because he'll tell you that I was critical in his coming to Christ, but I will tell you that he was critical in my coming to Christ because for the first time in my life, I had a man who showed me respect. He showed me that I was valuable. He listened. He was kind and gentle. He was Christ-like. What I love about God's grace is that it isn't something we earn. It isn't something we work toward. It isn't even something that we can seek out and find. It finds us. It seeks after us. It pursues us. His grace is like His presence. It never leaves us. I didn't walk out of darkness. He met me in the darkness and he called me beloved and he called me daughter. And he said, you are my prized possession and I love you. The healing that has taken place in my life is unbelievable. Without God, it does not make any sense. And I love him for that. I still am dependent on him every day. Every day I'm in his word. Every day I have mentorship. I have spiritual mothers. I have women that, that lead me and guide me. And then I am then leading and guiding. The grace of God is that he's bringing us to him so that he can treat us, so that he can heal us, so he can restore us because he has redeemed us.
precious to us from that first moment we believed and every moment after. May it always be before us. May we always be grateful. Thank you so much for your unconditional, never-ending grace. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you next week.